I'm Speech Thomas from the hip-hop crew Arrested Development. On the new VPM podcast, Track Change, I take you behind the walls of Richmond City Jail, where I help four men record an album and hear how they're trying to break free from a cycle of addiction and incarceration. Been so long since I've been free. Subscribe to Track Change in your podcast app. From Story Mechanics and VPM. I want to go back to a moment early in my reporting. It's late 2018. Reporter Sophie Behrman and I are on the road for some of our first interviews. At this point, we think we're telling the story of a hero who helped prove the innocence of 13 men, Mary Jane Burton. Over dinner one night, Sophie and I start talking about whether we should put any stock in the allegations raised by Gina Demas, the whistleblower. I mean, it seems no one else has. And then Sophie says something that we really haven't considered. An idea that feels so out of left field, I'm worried we might forget it. I pull out my phone and ask Sophie to say it again, catching her with a mouthful of wasabi peas. Maybe Gina is our hero as the long unsung right. person who's actually been looking out for these, these people convicted from people the beginning. beginning. So true. Yeah. Great. If she's not bad, she's crazy. Bad, she's is crazy. also what you said. Exactly. <laughs> she is. We're back to. Which, yeah, but if Ugh. she's not batshit crazy... This is good, yeah. It's the story about, like, this whistleblower mm-hmm. who got shunted to the side and this... this and all the spotlight. credit. Yeah, yeah, because then it's, like, enough of this. Her. Okay, batshit crazy, not great. I'm kind of embarrassed that we were so harsh and unfair to Gina. But I'm sharing this because I think it shows just how far we've come in this story. It shows something else, too. We were not the first to be skeptical of Gina. She's tried to tell a lot of people about the problems with Mary Jane's work. People at the lab, of course, but also reporters, attorneys, the Innocence Project, people involved with the state's review of the lab's case files, and now us. Will this time be any different? As we approached the release of this series, I wanted to go see Gina again to see how she feels about her full story finally coming out. How have her efforts to blow the whistle on the crime lab changed the course of her life? And what might the state of Virginia do about her allegations now? This is Admissible. I'm Tessa Kramer. I have not arrived, but I had just pulled over to grab a bite to eat. Nearly four years after I started reporting this story, I'm back on the road, on my way to see Gina again. So I'm somewhere between Chicago and Madison. Oh, okay. Gina's moved since we last met. She's now in Wisconsin, where her daughter lives. In a few months, she'll be moving again. Next time, out west. I was going to make shrimp scampi for dinner. Is that ooh, okay? Or? That sounds great. I just I thought, ooh, maybe she's allergic to shellfish. I better call. <laughs> Gina's invited me over for dinner with her daughter, Katie. As soon as I walk in the door, they start giving me all the updates, like Gina's brand new shoulder. She had her shoulder replaced. Yeah, look, Frankenstein. Oh, my God. Yeah. As Gina starts making dinner, the conversation turns to Mary Jane. 
why did she do it? Like, why did she? Because she thought she was doing helping the police. So she didn't think that what she was doing was wrong. Because yeah. I tried to get him not to have she's her. Very like intimidated by you too, because it's like you have all this new training, and she's like, "Oh, I like if I do these things these well, ways." And I changed the way we were doing some of the tests because it was better. It was newer ways, and, and she wasn't willing to learn those. Well, it was interfering with her creative writing, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Gina's still That's got not. that dark sense of humor. As we pick at the last of our shrimp scampi, Gina's kind of staring off into space. I'm sorry. Is it upsetting that I keep showing up, bringing all this stuff back no. up for you? No. <laughs> like, no, it's like, I think it's a good thing. Like, this has been going on for years. We're very hopeful that something good comes out of this. Yeah. Right? Like, right? We live in hope. <laughs> I... Don't really think Gina does have a lot of hope. Just listen to how she responds when I bring up her allegations coming to light in this podcast. How do you feel about the fact that this story is coming out? You always you always get kind of like really anticipating and you're thinking, man, finally something's going to get done and it never does. <laughs> so, I want to enjoy the part of it where I think something's going to get done. Before the dashing of the hope comes and nothing happens. <laughs> Nobody cares. <laughs> Gina's tried to tell so many people this story. People who either didn't call her back or made her feel like some sort of whack job. Over and over, Gina's been given no reason to believe that anyone cares about fixing these problems. And that started way back in the 70s. There were people who were in charge of that lab who knew that what I was saying was true. Even the Innocence Project people that dug stuff up. If you dig up three cases and they're all the same examiner, why don't you go look at that stuff? I told them. So there's hundreds of people along the way that chose to look away. So I don't, I don't know what to say about those people. It bothers me, but... The only thing I can do is take a shot at it every time I get a chance. It doesn't seem to help, but maybe it did. I don't know. I mean, how hard would it have been for somebody to just do the right thing? Testing, testing. Gina's recently started a new job. Oh, I see the flower stand. She's running a flower stand at a local grocery store. Gina appears from a room in the back. So this is where you work? Yes. Okay. On Monday, it looks a little sparse because <laughs> we've got flowers that just came in. This is a good selection of flowers. We're in the process of filling this. And I do you like a, it? Do you like yeah. the work? Yeah. <laughs> What's not to like? I can see why she might feel that way after what she went through at the lab. Something more chill, lower stakes. But as I watch Gina rearranging bouquets... I can't help thinking about how far this is from the career she pictured for herself at 22 with a shiny new biochem degree. This is how you put the stuff on the shelf. I come by and I'm like, oh my gosh, this one's out of place. What kind of mind is that, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, it had to be arranged a certain way or else I'm not happy. Though I feel like I see hints of the scientist Gina would have been. Know what I mean? The attention to detail, the pride she takes in her work... I don't know. Gina has to get back to work, so we say our goodbyes. Okay, turn this thing off. Driving back to the airport, I start thinking about the toll this fight has taken on Gina. 
sure, her career took a left turn, but it's more than that. Gina's got such a cynical sense of humor, it can be hard to tell just how much this eats at her. But I think it really does. You know, when you you think, okay, what's your lot in life? And I thought my lot was going to be one thing, and it ended up being this. That was my lot. It was given to me at the age of 22. I carry it with me, and when it comes up, I have to do it again. And I keep on doing it until it gets finished. Which it hasn't been yet. Mm-mm. How many years has it been? When did this start? 1970? I mean, almost... Almost 50 years. 50 years. Maybe on my anniversary something will happen. <laughs> Actually, one of the reasons I've come to see Gina is because I have some news to share. We did call and talk to the current director of the DFS. Oh, yeah. About a week earlier, I'd spoken to Linda Jackson. She's been the director of the lab since 2013. Many people I interviewed spoke really highly of her work. So I reached out and talked with Jackson and a colleague of hers asking about Gina's claims and Mary Jane Burton. They said they didn't know anything about this. A few days later, we got an email from the lab. I read it to Gina. That VPM is in possession of documents that would suggest that Mary Jane Burton, a former employee of DFS, falsified examination results in certain cases. The department is an accredited forensic laboratory with an ethical and professional obligation to investigate these types of allegations. Boy, can I have a plaque that says that? (laughs) (laughs) You can print this out if you want. (laughs) Warren is spinning right now. (laughs) Dr. Tiedemann. Gina seems delighted by the idea of the former heads of the lab spinning in their graves. Warren Johnson and Albert Tiedemann the people who told Gina not to buck the system in response to these exact same allegations. After the break, we sit down with someone who's worked with a lot of whistleblowers and seen time and again how institutions respond to their claims. Like, this is what happens. This is the wrong thing for an employer to do, and this is what they do all the time. And it's just the classic moves. Dana Gold, and I am senior counsel at the Government Accountability Project, which is a national whistleblower protection advocacy organization. Nice. How long have you been doing this work? How did you get into this work? So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> how much tape do you have? Dana Gold has worked with a lot of people like Gina. There's a lot of misperceptions about you know whistleblowers and their motives, but they're viewed as disloyal, right? Because they're standing up against the power structure. They're actually often the most loyal employees. And sometimes I say that they didn't get the memo. We've called Gina the whistleblower in this story, but Dana says whistleblowers don't always see themselves that way. They often are like, one, it's my job. They see a problem and it's their job. Is there an accountant or a quality control person or someone who basically is like, these are the rules that you follow and the laws that govern your job. And they don't see themselves as whistleblowers. And then they are surprised when they think they're going to raise a, a concern and something 
Like, it'll be fixed. And they trust their employer to say, oh, yeah, thanks. Thanks for raising that. So then they all of a sudden are labeled with this term whistleblower because the the response from the employer is not, thank you, we'll investigate and fix the problem. It's that you're the problem. You're the problem. So it's attacking the messenger rather than dealing with the message. And then they become you know, toxic. And you kind of don't become a whistleblower until the, it's the institution reacts. Yeah. It's about the employer response. If their employer responds appropriately, you know, with a credible investigation, they took it seriously, you know, the employee will accept those those responses. Like, it's a win for the organization, right? Yeah. But that is not what happens typically. As we've seen, instead of actually addressing the problem, institutions often go on the defensive. They try to make the whistleblower the problem, calling into question their motives. When the motives actually don't matter legally, they don't matter. It's like, is the person, does they have a reasonable belief that there was wrongdoing? And they don't even have to prove it, actually. They have to have a reasonable belief under most legal standards. Because then the agency can look into it and determine if there really is a problem. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. But you still don't get to retaliate against them. Yeah. Well, that's not what happened. Right, yeah. I tell Dana some key parts of Gina's story and about how the lab responded, how they threw the book at Gina for minor infractions. You start making a case to terminate them, making it about them. It's classic. How they told Gina she wasn't being a team player. Classic. 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 How they transferred Gina out of the serology lab to... Isolated her from the evidence of the problem. Classic. In case you missed that, This is classic whistleblower suppression. It's just not subtle even. I mean, that's like why I'm laughing because it's like every move is just like, this is what happens. This is the wrong thing for an employer to do and this is what they do all the time. And it's just the classic moves. I represent so many whistleblowers, but most people come to us after they start experiencing retaliation, right? And their lives are wrecked, like turned upside down. You know, we identify so much of our self, so much of our self-identity is based on our work, right? And it's also just like our livelihood. To have that destroyed and attacked because you did the right thing, because you're doing your job and you're good at it, it's like, it's like earth shattering. I have a feeling Dana might be interested to talk to Gina. So I set up a call between the two of them. Hi, Gina. This is Dana. I'm really excited to talk to you. Well, thank you. Gina tells Dana a bit about her journey. I started out trying to have a career in forensic science. I got a degree, a BS in biochemistry, which was as close as you could get at the time. That was what I was going to do. And when all this stuff happened, of course, I got set off on a different path. All the stuff that happened to me is always in the back of my mind. Mm -hmm. Um, I felt so guilty because what we were doing was mainly rapes and homicides. So if anybody was in jail wrongly, they could be executed. That was always on my mind that somebody might be killed. That shouldn't be. And it never goes away. So it's hard to carry it around, but eventually I guess you get used to it. Your experience is, it is not unusual. I think it's very common. It's very common, exactly, (laughs) even though it feels completely isolating and disorienting and life-altering. Definitely. I would say a lot of the people I work with, I'd be curious about this for you, Gina, is that even having gone through really kind of a horrible retaliation, life-altering experience— 
most of them would say, I did the right thing. I did the right thing and I would do it again. And I'd be curious if if you feel that way or not, because you actually blew the whistle at a very different time. Well, it, that was back when the FBI was famous for doing bad stuff like this. You know? Back when Gina was working in the lab, it was such a different time. Public trust in institutions used to be a lot higher than it is today. And without things like social media, I imagine it was harder for claims to gain traction and public support. Easier for a state crime lab to sweep problems under the rug and to silence a trainee in her early 20s. You know, you said something about, you know, would you do it again? Would you not do it again? I don't know for sure, but most people who do this don't feel like they really have a choice. You know, somebody said to me, well, why didn't you just go get a job somewhere else? And I said, well, how would I know it wouldn't be the same thing over? I couldn't do that again. Yeah. You know, when you expose misconduct of those who, you know, abuse their power, the move typically is to go after the messenger to deflect the message. It's like, let me tack your credibility. You know, you don't know what you're talking about. It's like the ultimate form of gaslighting. But it's, in my case, there were like black and white pieces of paper before and after, you know, here, it's this blood type over here, and then we erase it and we write another one. Exactly. It's based on facts. And it's not about me. It's not about you, it's and it's objective. About it's like anything of my work. All it is is here's this and here's this. What's interesting, too, is you talk, you know, Dr. Ferrara, who went on to become the director of the lab, You know, he came out in that article in 2004, and he said, we never found any proof of her allegations. And lied. And I told you, if they do it again, I am going to go after them. Because I'm not going to have it again. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of people saying I'm a liar. Yeah. It's not okay. No. No. I've got receipts, right? <laughs> You've got the goods. That's right. You've got the goods. I would like for, to come out that they were told in 1970 that they had a problem. And they didn't do anything about it. They covered it up and it continued. That's what I would like to come out. And Miss. I'm going to do a review. We need to do an investigation. I hope they do. Now what? That's a good question. If the DFS does investigate, what can we expect to come of it? The answer to that is not a complete mystery. The DFS has been in the hot seat before. Next time, we're going to take a look at the lab's record of reviewing misconduct within its own four walls— starting with one of the most notorious cases in the lab's history. Can you characterize what went wrong in his case, especially as far as how the DFS messed up? Oh, gosh. That's a long list. I mean, Earl Washington came within nine days of being executed. Can't get worse than that.
Permissible is produced and hosted by Tessa Kramer. Our executive producer is Ellen Horn. Original reporting by Tessa Kramer and Sophie Behrman, with additional reporting by Ben Pavier and Whitney Evans. Our editor is Danielle Elliott, with additional editing by Ellen Horn. Our production team is Dana Bialik, Chloe Wynn, Gilda DiCarli, Leslie Nyer, Kristen Vermilia, and Kim Naderfane-Peterson. Gavin Wright is VPM's managing producer for podcast. Meg Lindholm is the director of podcast production. Sound design and mix by Charles Michelet. Music by Del Toro Sound and Story Mechanics. And with additional music by APM. Our theme music is by me, Brian J. Howard of Del Toro Sound. Admissible Season 1 Shreds of Evidence is produced by Story Mechanics and VPM. Virginia's home for public media. We are distributed by iHeartMedia. VPM. 